on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, it's the second part of our doubleheader on Opera's rebound from the pandemic. Your OBS team picks four season announcements that just might be the pace car for other opera houses this fall. Plus, two-minute drill, it's Madama Butterfly cancel culture. Yeah, we're just going to say cancel culture until it doesn't mean anything anymore. Oliver Camacho, love that cap. Thank you so much. It's Italian, apparently. Oh. And so it, you, it makes it look like I have Apple. hair because people can't really tell. You know, so. Please don't tell us that you went to Italy. No, um, it was. I'm a sucker for boutique shopping when I'm out of town. If I'm ever like in your town and if you have a boutique block, expect me to buy a hat there. So, Matt Cummings still worried about the Olympics. I, I actually have an Olympics watch special feature for us all this week, and the special feature is named Simone Biles because yes, we don't is. deserve Simone Biles. I don't know about you all, but I have watched the video of her nailing that Yurchenko double pike vault from the U.S. Classic on a for several days at this point. Uh, and now cue the outrage cycle of people saying that she's too good and ruining the competition because no one can catch up to her. That's how competition works, people. I, like, I'm sorry to have to break it to you. You don't just have to write new rules because one person is so much better than everyone else, which she is. Ashley Hardgrave. USA, USA, USA. <laughs> Tell us... The big story from the WNBA. So behind president of the world, Simone Biles, is vice president Liz Cambage because she's had quite the week. Uh, so the Connecticut Sun GM and coach Kurt Miller is in a little bit of hot water. He's been fined 10000 He's been suspended for a game for some disparaging comments he made about a Las Vegas Aces star by the name of Liz Cambage. So basically she posted on her Instagram story because she found out about some remarks that he made to a referee and he basically said something along the lines of she was trying to like force a call and he said something along the lines of come on she's 300 pounds first of all i can't say the expletives i want to uh cambridge corrects him in an instagram post and she says okay she's six foot eight she's 235 because she just weighed herself so to make sure that she was right and she had all of the facts uh she also said she was very proud of being a big b and this is my favorite part i will never let a man disrespect me ever 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 especially a little white one don't ever try to disrespect me or another woman in the league hit him where it hurts sorry about it i had completely forgotten that the nhl playoffs were happening this is (laughs) this is and and like hockey is literally my favorite sport when your team's not in it well, the That's Detroit what happens Red when you Wings, have a season that lasts the whole year. The Detroit Red Wings are not in it, unlike Matt's uh, Pittsburgh Penguins. But hey, secondly, yes. as Matt says, it's almost June. We should not be playing hockey in June. Look, the Stanley Cup final should happen before Memorial Day. No ifs, ands, or buts. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. All right, last week in Chalk Talk, we spitballed about just how exactly opera companies were going to come out of the pandemic, whenever that is. So who would hit on forced errors, who would get caught flat-footed and stumble out of the gate, and which companies would come out of the bullpen throwing heat? As season announcements continue to hit the headlines, we take a look at four companies in Chalk Talk who run the gamut of what halftime adjustments have been made and where opera goes next. We're going to start at home in our own backyard with Lyric Opera of Chicago. Matt Cummings, talk us through this season and the adjustments that Lyric has made. Yeah, so let's talk about Lyric Opera of Chicago's non-existent 2020-21 season a little bit because I do think it provides a context that's like more important for them as a company than many others, which is the 2020-21 was supposed to be a big transition year. 
It was going to be the valediction of Andrew Davis, the retiring music director, the introduction to the public of Enrique Mazzola as the new music director. He's he's conducted a couple operas at Lyric before, but this was going to be his, you know, his big uh, coming out ball. Um, they moved ahead with replacing all of their new chairs in the auditorium for greater accessibility and comfort, entered an agreement to share the space with the Joffrey Ballet. These were like big marquee news items at the time and have kind of gotten forgotten because everyone's um, brains are broken. And I don't remember anything that happened before last week. No small um, feat, by the way, to try and figure out some sort of a deal to share uh, the Civic Opera House with the Joffrey. That mm -hmm. would be yeah. complex. And they're 20. Their 2021 season was pretty ambitious. And this one that they just announced last week is in some ways just as ambitious and in other ways really not so much. So what really stood out to me flipping through their, their brochure and looking at their announcement is, first of all, right on the very first page, it's like the second or third bullet point. They talk about how and, they and are. And you were flipping through a dead tree. Here, it was like a, uh it's a it's a digital brochure but it does come with like page turn animations and like a recorded sound effect for as you click from page to page because <laughs> you know when you got the web budget um but right on that very first page they talk about how the inclusion diversity equity and access plan going back to what we were talking about with the pledge from the black opera alliance that is being presented front and center um how much they're going to be able to live up to that in a way that makes substantive difference in the art form though i think is a little bit up for debate um lyric opera chicago is a company that really thrived on the subscription model where you would subsidize your your more daring repertoire choices be they rare or new works with chestnuts that everyone and their mother will come out and see and buy tickets and sell out the houses to 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 pay for it and um, a musical exactly <laughs> And this year, I think, in some ways, is the most bifurcated season yet between the the shows that are paying for it and the shows that they that show the company that they really would like to be and where we're trying where we all on this show for sure are trying to move the art form. Um, so when you take a look on the one hand, you've got a new production of Macbeth, a new to Chicago production of Elixir of Love, the silent movie production, of the Barry Kosky silent movie Magic Flute and um, a new to Chicago pr uh, production of Tosca. All operas that they've done multiple times since I moved to Chicago 12 years ago, all thoroughly within the top 20, 25 operas of standard rep. Um, and then on the other hand, you have a the the Chicago premiere, lyric premiere of Florencia and El Amazonas, the, uh, a chamber work, Missy Mazzoli's Proving Up, that's going to be done at the Goodman. And the premiere of the co-production of with the Met of Fire Shut Up in My Bones, the Terrence Blanchard opera. With the exception of their new premiere of Bel Canto a couple of years ago, I would say that usually when we're talking about the lesser known chestnuts, it's going to be like a rarer work from a standard composer op of opera. But this year they really are, I will say one baby step forward that they are definitely taking is that they are prioritizing new works by composers from underrepresented backgrounds. In, in the classical pantheon with Missy Mazzoli and Terrence Blanchard. Uh, and you can definitely see that in these standard rep war horses, there are a higher number of BIPOC singers cast in prominent roles uh, than I really remember in, in, in any previous season in Chicago. To be explicit, Michelle Bradley as Tosca, which I'm very excited about. I was going to say Thomas, the, friend of the show. Yeah, Russell Thomas, Michelle Bradley, and Fabian Velos, the whole principal cast of Tosca is non-white, which is amazing. Ying Fang is Pamina in Magic Flute, Eileen Perez in Elixir of Love, Ana Maria Martinez is going to be in the uh, Florencia, Florencia and Amazonas, and uh, also at that Tosca is the conducting debut of Eun Kim from San Francisco. Uh all of the shows are either new productions or new to Chicago productions. So they are trying to, you know, roll out the red carpet, welcome people back to the house. But one thing that is a little bit troubling, I have to say, is that instead of their normal eight full productions, we're being cut back to six full productions, a chamber work, and the rescheduled Beethoven 9 concert for Andrew Davis is selling off. So then is this an opportunity for Lyric to not return to an eight 
plus show model and to stay at six. They at this time are saying that it's just for this season and they are planning to return to eight for 22-23 and that they had to cut it short for safety and budget uh, as a part of their COVID mitigations and also with, you know, fundraising taking a general crater throughout the industry. I love this idea of doing. They got those sweet up. seats. They got to test out, you know. Well, yeah. lots, lots of sweet seats. Although by moving proving up to the Goodman Theater, you start to create a partnership with another iconic Chicago institution, both the building and the organization. Of course, it's a contemporary opera. I think it's going to do very well in the Goodman space. And we're now, very happy for Will Lieberman to have a star vehicle. Um, who used Absolutely. to be in the Ryan Opera Center. He's so good. He's going to be in the fire, shut up my bones, along with LaTanya Moore, Jacqueline Eccles, Chauncey Park Packer, and Christopher Kenny. That's a, a really awesome cast. Tell the cast. Matt, um, before we wrap it up with you and head east, what is Lyric's plan in terms of its COVID response? Every opera house is going to be trying to spin this. What is Lyric's take? So Lyric's plan is that there is going to be flexibility in terms of whether or not you feel comfortable going to the theater on any given night and that you'll be able to, uh, with, so they'll have a more generous refund program. All of their operas are going to be shortened and have no full intermission as a part of the COVID protocols. Uh, well, you're not going to like that, man. Last week on the show, you were lamenting the LA Times article about As no long as it's for safety, I can get on board. I just don't want to get in. I don't want to interrupt the dramatic thrust of these works. Um, they will also be offering virtual streams of the season shows, but only to ticket holders as an alternative to attending the theater in person. So really no, no further attempts beyond what they've done with putting old streams on the internet in terms of capitalizing on the digital space. Right. Our own backyard. Going to watch that closely. Oliver Camacho, we're heading into the East region then with Opera Philadelphia. Opera Philadelphia, friend of the show. Um, we were going to have Sandra Radvanovsky at Opera Philadelphia doing Lady Macbeth. Wasn't that right? Was Chicago stole her. Yeah, she, so she's moving that role debut to Chicago, but right. they are going forward with uh, other friend of the show, um, Quinn Kelsey and Sandra Radvanovsky's uh, streaming version of the drama of Tosca. I, I think that might even have happened already, uh, but that's going to be on the Opera Philadelphia channel offerings. And they are extending the Opera Philadelphia channel offerings to include new content. There are some digital commissions that will take place uh, throughout the fall, winter, and spring. Um, they're going to do a, a show of chorus and organ <laughs> throughout the city of Philadelphia. I don't know how they're going to sell that, to be honest with you, but that's going to be, I think, uh, Where are they going to get the uh, organ grinder? They're going to be broadcasting that in July. They're going to visit some of Philadelphia's famous organs. So it'll be a nice little <laughs> tour. of. <laughs> uh, that's what she said. Uh, that'll be a tour of <laughs> Philadelphia with the Philadelphia Opera Chorus. Um, a very exciting for Opera to Philadelphia Channel, James Dara. James Dara, James Dara, James Dara. Uh, James Dara, James Dara. And Patricia Reset in a Bois Humaine. And then they're going to dig up from their archive something I'm really excited to see, which is... Anthony Roth Costanzo's Glass Handle, um, which was a show he did for them, like I said, in 2018. New content on Opera Philadelphia channel will include uh, Hens's El Cimarron with uh, Willard White. That's about oh, like wow. slavery in Cuba. That's... Um, that's something that we were excited about when they had announced it pre-pandemic. Right, and right, that, right. that project is moving to the digital platform. And there'll also be some of the things that... Um, have already broadcast on the on the station like Soldier Songs, uh, filmed by uh, James McCullough. Is that his name? Oh, I love him. And um, the Traviata with Lizette Oropesa. So live performances begin in the summer with a staged concert. Uh, it's going to be a friend of the show, Lawrence Brownlee and Michael Spires doing their Rossini show, the Amici Rivali show, but they're doing it um, at the Mann Center for Performing Arts, which is an outdoor venue, which seats like 14,000 people. So I'm just curious yeah. if there are 14,000 people that are interested in hearing Rossini as much as I'll I am. But be bringing 13,999 of my close to go hang out with Laurie. <laughs> I mean, that's really exciting. That'd be a great dating pool for me uh, if all 14,000 show up. Uh, then in <laughs> January, they moved to the Verizon Concert Hall 
which is a hall that seats 2,500 to do two concert performances, uh, Oedipus Rex by Stravinsky and a work by the black composer, George Walker. It's a short work called um, Lilacs. Uh, and the George Walker piece does definitely invite a lot of DEI casting. Uh, so two shows not in their standard venues, one outside, one in a concert hall. Finally, in the spring, they return to the Academy of Music, their home, for Rigoletto, safe bet, uh, with friend of the show, Anthony Clark Evans, and two Black artists, uh, Joshua Blue as the Duke and Raven McMillan as Gilda. Who just so, won the Met Council auditions. Oh, awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So there we have it. We have uh, putting more money into Opera Philadelphia Channel, which we haven't been invited to be on yet. I'm talking to you, Frank Luzzi. Uh, some stuff outside, some stuff in a concert hall, and the organ show, <laughs> and then uh, safely back uh, in operation at the Academy of Music in the spring. The the organ show tour, I think I believe it's called Organ Stops. Yes. Uh, that is totally bonkers, and I would just love to see it. Opera Philadelphia has always done such a great job of really getting out into the city of brotherly love. With the O Festival, they have used many, many different venues. It does not surprise me one bit that David Devan and the administration at Opera Phila have said, both in terms of these pieces and aesthetically where we want them, plus in terms of COVID protocols, we want to use many different spaces in this city, both indoors and out. So that's just that's just the point, though. Um, it's a gradual return to the stage with a clear, you know, celebration in spring with an opera that everybody would want to see if you like opera, except people who don't want to see Rigoletto because it's too much like what everybody wants to see. And people reject sometimes things that are popular. You know how that goes. Uh, but an emphasis on their digital content, um, which and they're putting some of the most exciting stuff on their digital platform. Oliver Camacho going to be watching Opera Philadelphia closely with your thirteen thousand nine hundred and ninety nine <laughs> friends and relations. Uh, we're going to head all the way over to the West Coast. Now we're talking about how opera companies are making adjustments at halftime as we look to get out of the pandemic and we look to what's happening next. Ashley Hardgrave, what sort of adjustments, if any, are being made at Long Beach Opera? Um, not a ton, uh, because they've been innovative for quite some time. They've been really thriving on collaborations and partnerships. They are in a climate that is very welcoming to avant-garde and outdoor performance spaces. So it's kind of let's keep this train going as opposed to let's do a lot of shifts and pivots. Uh, you know, Yurel Sharon and Jennifer Rivera have been making some very interesting choices in the previous season moving into this one. I mean, the nice thing is they, they didn't ever really stop during the pandemic. Uh, their, uh, their online content is very, very robust. They've been putting things out. It looks almost like a blog. There's just like entry after entry after entry. There's the 2020 project. There's all these really cool things that they're doing. But if I had to sum up their season now, and also, you know, keep in mind that Long Beach is, is a little bit smaller and more nimble of an organization their seasons are shorter their seasons are you know two to four shows in general this year it's going to be a two season or a two two shower long beach is actually the oldest operatic producing company in the la metro area even older than la opera but if i were going to nutshell their season it would be (laughs) and i this is what i wrote dara 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 meets collabs meets more parking garage opera meets ladies burning it all down that's basically the season two shows together in a nutshell and i feel like we talk about james dara so much on the show if we look directly into the camera and say his name three times in a row i think he appears um so i'm not going to say the whole thing all the way well, through, i mean just half in the case panel happens, are unless we need him for an interview man, so I, I i don't know what to say here's here's the thing I'm, about, I'm quite fond of them i don't know if i'd be in love here's the thing about los angeles is that you can be dreadful in la especially if you're a sports team you can be <laughs> the dreadful la rams you can be the dreadful the Angels, the Mighty Ducks, whatever. There's one thing you cannot be. The Clippers, thank you. There's one thing you cannot be in L.A. You cannot be boring. If you're boring in L.A., that is the death knell. And Long Beach Opera, LBO, has 
consistently found a way to do great programming in person or in this pandemic remotely, as you said, with all these online offerings. So really, Ashley, there's no halftime adjustments being made here. No, not at all. Uh, and also halfway through their season is almost exactly where we are right now because of their two show season. They just closed one this past weekend. Uh, so the first one was a sold out run of Glass's Les Enfants to Rive. Uh, so Long Beach has all commitment to performing works by Philip Glass. So this is just a continuation of that. Uh, they had more relaxed COVID restrictions in the Long Beach area. It let them create this live performance experience that was different than anything that they have done. And that's saying something because these are the folks who sing in public aquariums with like frequency. So this was Darius' production of Les Enfants, originally seen at the One Festival at Opera Omaha. Chris Roundtree was conducting. There were four singers. One quarter of those were people of color. So we're singing gay. Edward Nelson, who also served as DJ. Anna Schubert and Sarah Beatty, also four dancers. They really leaned into this being a dance piece as well as a vocal piece. So they held the show at this huge outdoor events and shopping center. It's called Second and PCH. It's gorgeous. It's literally right on the Pacific Coast Highway. It's it's so stunning. They did it in the parking garage. So guests could actually choose whether they wanted to do the tailgate style or from actually inside their cars. So action occurs throughout all the parking structure. There were multiple screens. There's actually footage of Dara taking shots of the camera that were going to be projected live on the big screens. Uh, like I mentioned before, Ed Nelson was going to be the DJ before the show. LA Times did post some photos of the dress rehearsal, and it looked absolutely stunning. And one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, we, we know that outdoor activities are still currently safe than indoor activities. And when you have a place that's as temperate and as warm as Long Beach, this is this is perfect for them. In so many ways, they have a, a real leg up in being able to produce innovative and safe productions just because it's so darn nice all the time. Uh, but anyway, that's the first part of their season. The second part of their season is going to happen in August. And it is a double bill that I'm very excited about. It's very ladytastic. The way they advertise it on their website opens with this question. And I read, why are women in opera so often depicted as prostitutes, sacrificial victims, or both? <laughs> just sit, sit with that for a second and think about just how true that is. And then think about what they're going to be doing for this second piece. They're going to do a double bill. They're pairing Piero Lunaire with Kate Supper's voice from the voices from the killing jar. This is going to be really, really incredible. First half is going to be this Pierre Lunaire, which is the woman singing this man's hero tale of love and sex and religion. He's his own hero. He's his own fool. And then they're immediately going to follow it up with this voices from the killing jar, which is this gorgeous, gorgeous storytelling of famous women in world lit from Giovanni to the great Gatsby to Shakespeare to Murakami to unravel men's depictions of women throughout the centuries. Uh, it's going to have Peabody Southwell as Perot, Laurel Irene, who is going to be in the killing jar. So these are both, you know, sort of solo lady performances. We have a female conductor and a person, Jenny, or a person of color, Jenny Wong, conducting both of them. We also have two female directors, Danielle Agami and Zoe Asia Moore. This is also another one of their big collaboration experiences because, you know, we had the production that was initially with Opera Omaha as our first piece in the season. This piece, they're teaming up with Annenberg Center in Beverly Hills, the 8-9 Dance Company, and the contemporary ensemble Wild Up. This is all going to be at an exclusive secret location, although they do say it's going to be socially distanced and outdoor, but it's, it's almost like an underground speakeasy underground in, in quotes and they're only revealing the location to ticket holders this is going to be epic i am so excited i know i keep saying this but i might go to lbc just to see this performance in august Good la's luck. hottest club is long beach Opera. Okay. <laughs> it has everything That's lady conductors people of color dancers contemporary music ensembles that's that's going to be the, the tagline right there matt Cummings, ashley hardgrave Thank you so much. Checking in from the West Coast. If we head back east over the Atlantic Ocean, we're going to wrap up this talk, talk with uh, my look at English National Opera. I, I love English National Opera. When I was growing up there as a child, the first opera I ever went to was at ENO. And it was uh, a production of uh, La Clemenza di Tito. And it was probably the most boring thing I think I'd ever <laughs> witnessed in my entire life. Love ENO uh, because it's a lot cheaper than Covent Garden. Uh, it's e as central in London as the Royal Opera House. 
all the work there is done in English, which I think is really important. It makes me think of the Komischer Oper in Berlin, where all the work is done in German. So ENO, it's got the, the 21-22 season out. The big stat here, 90% of the casts are British, British-based, or British-trained. And ENO says that shows its commitment to supporting and nurturing homegrown talent. The uh, mm. skeptics and cynics among us would say that's them making their peace with Brexit and realizing that they're not going to get anybody from the continent to come over. The The season is split uh, thematically into two halves. So chronologically, these are all intermixed. But thematically, you have four new shows plus four revivals. The revivals kick off with the production of Tosca, August 27th, at uh, Crystal Palace, which is an outdoor venue. The next production after that, October 14th, Satyagraha, Philip Glass, directed by Phelan McDermott. This is the 2017 production. There's six weeks between these two events. To me, an October start feels really late for this opera house. I think what they want to do is they want to have time so that if Britain goes into another lockdown, if other variants of uh, coronavirus come into the country, they have the space to rework things and to make that kind of adjustment in the middle. Cosi Fantute, also directed by Phelan McDermott, he's going to be able to make those boat payments, no problem. And then the Jonathan Miller production of La Boheme. Let's get to the new shows. This is where I start scratching my head a little bit. And I'm looking for patterns here, and I don't see patterns. A new production of HMS Pinafore by, of course, Gilbert and Sullivan, this directed by Cal McChrystal. I don't see the logic behind this. I don't see I, the reasoning. I never see the reason of doing Gilbert and Sullivan, but I'm not English <laughs> national. Burn. <opera. laughs> it's, it's, not a, it's not a burn. It's not a singe because Matt's speaking truth here. I, I just don't know why you would do it at this level, especially in the opera house where Jonathan Miller's seminal production of the Mikado in, from the 1980s was done and was still until very recently part of the repertoire there. Again, I'm going out of order here uh, to, to try and find a pattern. Janacek, Cutting Little Vixen. Great. Mm. Uh, it's a great opera, of course. I don't see the rationale in programming it right now. Is, are we going to have an interpretation which is about, you know, the environmental and climate chaos that we are bringing on ourselves? That would be like the obvious take. We'll see. Uh, Paul Ruder's Handmaid's Tale. This is directed by Annalise Miskimmon, who became artistic director of ENO in May of 2020. If you look back in your calendars, you'll see what was going on this time last year. Now, this is a piece, I believe it premiered at Boston Lyric Opera a couple years ago. It's becoming very, very popular. It makes the most sense to me that this is the, a piece that uh, ENO has programmed. And lastly, we've talked about this one on the show before, the true head scratcher beginning a ring cycle. Actually, this is Valkyrie, Richard Jones directing. Uh, I'm assuming that although they're starting with, you know, episode three here, it's going to turn into some sort of ring cycle. Uh, sorry, two. Thank you. Episode two. Uh, Siegfried is three. I know what I'm talking about. I, I, don't, <laughs> under, I don't understand it. I, you know, Miss Gibbons said, you know, Art in a time of collapse and chaos demands great things. She clearly believes in this sense of an artistic renaissance. This makes no sense to me. Somebody tell me why you. I mean, you won't get any argument from me that you won't get any argument from me that no one wants to sit through Ryan Gold. Um, but nope, no thanks. George, did you not get the memo that you had to do a company where James Dare was working this year? <laughs> Should we give bring him look. on for comment? Yeah, if I say yeah. his name in the camera three times, give give the man time. Okay, he's going to get to ENO. He's going to get to ENO. So the <laughs> halftime adjustments for ENO, uh, you know, waiting and seeing the late start, opening with a staged concert, that version of Tosca, and then slowly moving into what I think are some fairly conservative productions with GNS, and then when we get to Valkyrie, let me check. I want to check the date on Valkyrie. That is 
Yep, it's at the end of the 2021 calendar year. What's this world going to be like? I don't know. We will see. Well, they have Phil McDermott, who gets good reviews from his the artists who work with him. And that, but that's a re, that's a reproduction, right? a remounting of an it's old correct. production. It's correct. It's a re, it's a remount. Yeah, both the cozy and the uh, Sachigraha. And uh, Handmaid's Tale is definitely appropriate for our Amy Coney Barrett court. So, agree, agree. Yeah. We'll be watching I have another these. name for Amy, but I won't say it on <laughs> on camera. We'll be watching these opera companies and cunning little vixen, maybe <laughs> as this uh, community of opera houses and opera artists continues to adjust and make uh, changes to their programming in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, a little bit of sports talk before we get into the drill. Ashley, I didn't know you liked golf. I don't particularly. Um, I have two connections to it. Number one, my dad was a big fan and watched it every Sunday after church. Number two, uh, I grew up next to Yell County, Arkansas, which is where Bay Ridge Bowden Golf Club was, which is where John Daly honed his chops. John Daly has got a whole other series of events that followed, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but in golf news this week, Phil Mickelson makes history as the oldest golfer to win the PGA Championship at 50. To which I say, hasn't Phil Mickelson always been 50? I thought he was 50 like <laughs> 20 years ago. That Come is an there, old yes. man's name. Is there a little Phil Mickelson in first grade somewhere waiting for a juice box? No, that is an old man's name. He is already old and has been old. I don't understand this stat at all. Other sports news. The English Premier League has wrapped up its season. My two teams had great success this year. Aston Villa uh, ended up right in the middle of the table, which is probably about as good as they could possibly have done. And my other team, the uh, Norwich City, the Canaries, are being promoted from the English Championship League all the way up to the very top, all the way up to the Premiership. So I'll get my scarf ready for August when it all kicks off. All those um, matches are on NBC, actually, so you can watch them. Two-minute drill, though. That's right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week. Met Chorus artists have announced that 148 furloughed Met Agma artists are set to receive emergency funds thanks to the Face the Music fundraising campaign. Over $200,000 was raised from worldwide donors, and each benefiting artist will receive about $1,300 of emergency support. Friend of the show, Michael Christie, says he's, quote, thrilled to conduct the 2021 BBC Cardiff Singer of the World main prize competition. That's happening without an audience. He says, this truly epic undertaking reminds me of several similar projects I've led at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. So I'm ready for the challenge of the huge variety of music and the rush of the nonstop performance schedule. That competition starts June 12 in Cardiff. Add another to our amazing Opera Mother series and congratulations to contralto Emily Hardman, who gave birth to her daughter, Rosemary Claire, in the backseat of her Honda Accord. It felt empowering. I did it all by myself, and I actually got most of what was on my birth plan except for the location and the providers, said the new mother. Stork balloons, hospital food, and sassy but well-meaning nurses not included. Earlier today, marquee countertenor Philippe Jaruski performed with Ensemble Artisterse in his first concert in front of an audience as the conductor. Alessandro Scarlatti's oratorio, The First Homicide, everybody's favorite, was Jaruski's conducting debut at the Whitson Festival by invitation of festival director Cecilia Bartoli. Philippe Jaruski, Bo Jacksoning his career, but so far not Barbara Hannigan-ing it. Boston Lyric Opera has postponed plans for its new production of Madame La Butterfly and will embark on a year-long process to examine how we can fully engage more thoughtfully and respect responsibly with the music, dramaturgy, and modern cultural implications of Butterfly. General slash Artistic Director Bradley Fernander said that the change is an affirmation that BLO is committed to creating inclusive environments and inter intentional storytelling for its audiences and its artists. 
No to reopening without social rights, reads a banner in French on the facade of the Opera de Lyon, which has canceled performances of Le Coq d'Or. The building is currently being occupied by staff members who are demanding cultural, ecological, economic, and social justice. Opera de Lyon is seeking a court order to evict the protesters, but the hearing for that is scheduled for May 27th, so no golden cock for you. Yeah, speak for yourself, Ashley. In trade news, Teatro Regio di Parma's Ana Maria Mayo has been voted president of Opera Europa, a service organization for professional opera companies and opera festivals throughout the continent, a counterpart to Opera America. This is the first time an Italian woman has presided over Opera Europa since its foundation in 2002. Los Angeles Opera has announced that Stephen Fry has joined the cast of Oedipus Rex. The notable English actor will record audio for the role of the narrator for both the digital release of the production and the live performance. This week's Yellow Cards. Germany. Hamburg State Opera will reopen on May 28th with performances of Agrippina and a ballet Beethoven Projekt Zweite. This week's Red Cards. <laughs> There's no way I can say Germany that well. The Berlin Philharmonic has announced that conductor Alan Gilbert has canceled a concert on June 5 due to COVID-19 illness. Italy! La Scala has postponed its stream and performance of Rossini's L'Italiana Il Geri after an artist tested positive for COVID-19. Spain! Teatro de la Maestranza in Seville has postponed the opening of its Carmen production to May 29th due to two positive COVID-19 cases. On the disabled list, Evelino Pido was forced to withdraw due to quarantine regulations in Madrid and London, causing Covent Garden to announce new conductors for its upcoming production of La Boheme. Renato Balsadona and Paul Wynne Griffiths will split Pido's concert dates. Exit stage right, Spanish-based baritone Alfonso Echeverria has passed away. Originally graduating with a law degree, he went on to perform at the Vienna State Opera and the Teatros Real, Liceu, Abao, Campo Amor, Teatro de la Zarzuela, and on 20-plus recordings. He was also the musical director of the Eugenia Echarren Singing School in Pamplona. Russian baritone Vladimir Redkin has died. Redkin enjoyed a successful career at the Bolshoi Theater and was best known for roles in such operas as The Barber Seville, Rigoletto, Tosca, and Nabucco. Redkin was also a member of the voice faculty of Lomonosov Moscow State University. Austrian soprano Maria Kuba, best known for her interpretation of Zalame, has died at 100. She first sang the role in Graz in 1957, stepping in for an ill colleague, and went on to perform the opera more than 200 times. And on this day, May 24th. And on this day, May 24th. 1899 was the first performance of Jules Massenet's Saint-Jérôme in Paris. 1912 brought us the birth of New Zealand soprano and champion golfer Dame Joan Hammond in Christchurch. 1914 was the birth of Italian baritone Giuseppe Valdengo. 1918 was the first performance of Bela Bartok's opera Bluebeard's Castle at the Budapest Opera, one for Weston. 1921 was the birth of Italian tenor Giuseppe Zampieri in Verona. 1927 brought us the birth of Polish soprano Jadwiga Wiesochanska in Prague. We did recently report on her death in the two-minute drill. 1948 was the first performance of Benjamin Britten's orchestration of John Gay's The Beggar's Opera in Cambridge, one for me. And in 1970, happy birthday to baritone Michael Chioldi. And that's your two-minute drill. Podcast listeners, you just heard the contralto Emily Hardman, whose stage name is Emily Geller, singing Send in the Clowns from Sondheim's A Little Night Music, accompanied by pianist David Steck. Well, and congrats, Emily. Hope you and the fam are all healthy. How phenomenal. What that story. is one story that would have been great for uh, Ashley's piece on 
uh, mothers in opera. Yep. Sometimes you just got to push it out in the car. I mean, I, I say this phrase a lot on this show, but the story rings true. Sisters are doing it for themselves. Yeah. Good job, Emily. <laughs> for sure. Boston Lyric Opera announces that it's taking a pause. It's re-examining its approach and its plans uh, for Madama Butterfly. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're AD Bradley Bernatter, uh, along with the season announcement, which actually is interesting. They have um, Janae Bridges in... Cavalleria Rusticana and um, other things, <laughs> but the Janae Bridge is what stuck out to me. Um, Mr. Vernatter says that uh, they recommend, recognize his piece as a masterwork and for good reason, they're taking responsibility to unpack the layers of the story, particularly as they relate to appropriation, race, and gender stereotypes. Boston Lyric Opera remains committed to employing our previously engaged butterfly artists, so we'll see who what they show up in, and engaging with them in a thoughtful way around the opera. And that actually brings to mind uh, a story that I saw circulating around. I forgot her name, so I should look it up before I talk about it. Um, but there is this Japanese or this Asian mezzo-soprano who like gets a lot of gigs singing Suzuki. And... Uh, her post was being circulated uh, around the social medias about how, yes, let's cancel Madam but Butterfly, but remember that if you cancel Madam Butterfly, you're also canceling my work. So uh, it's a double-edged sword and- it's tough. Uh, Yeah. Uh, but other things that are happening in Boston Lyric Opera season, they're doing uh, Svadba, uh, a new made for the screen production of the Juno award-winning composer, Anna Sokolovich's one act acapella opera. Hmm. Um, and what else are they doing? Champion, uh, the Terrence Blanchard mm -hmm. um, opera, uh, which oh, about the boxer, yeah, which had uh, Solomon, yeah, Solomon Howard, I think, was in the premiere, a friend of the show. Um, but they're gonna have um, Chris Kenny in that uh, production uh, as the young Emil. I think they're talking about Christopher Kenny, who is an artist who sang in the Ryan Opera Center, and I'm a big fan of. So. Good for their ongoing diversity efforts. Um, there's more stuff you can check out, Boston Lyric Opera. But yeah, I mean, we have to figure out what to do with Madame Butterfly. I mean, I don't want to lose it forever. Uh, I think it has fantastic music. Um, I, have to, I have to confess, like, it's one of my, it used to be my favorite Puccini opera before I understood that uh, I was, uh, you know, I was being the man by liking that opera. I was supporting the patriarchy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, it's one of those things like, you know, as, as someone who's all about making sure that, you know, there's there's justice and, and just desserts. You know, we mentioned cancel culture, excuse me, at the top of, you know, at the top of this episode, cancel culture is often thrown around as a as a bad word uh, in certain circles. And it's really just a mispronunciation of the notion of accountability. And I think there is a way for us to be accountable and appropriate and respectful, but still maintain this masterful piece of music there has got to be a way to reconcile it what it is yet i don't know but there's got to be a way to do it and it, it also is just you know taking the temperature of the room and what's going on in the world right now and in the u.s right now you know we're not that far out from those horrific uh, Asian American shootings in Atlanta. There there are tides of hate violence rising. The Senate and House just passed a, an anti-hate crimes bill because sure did. You know, tensions are high. And doing a piece of uh, white imperialist violence against the Japanese people is, you know, it's a okay. disrespectful move right now. And that can be okay without without it being any kind of censorship. Philippe Yaruski starting to follow in the footsteps of Barbara Hannigan, almost, not quite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, before we leave Madame Butterfly, I finally found it. Her name is uh, Nina Yoshida Nelson, uh, and she wrote uh, a long post uh, on Facebook about being an Asian American woman in opera and canceled Butterfly Productions. Um, and so you can find that if you are a Facebook user, look for Nina Yoshida Nelson. Uh, hire us for non-Asian roles. Bring us into direct conduct and reinterpret to re to conduct and reinterpret Madame Butterfly. To direct conduct and reinterpret Madame Butterfly, and remember to include us in your anti-racism efforts and when you are making decisions to change course. That's the summary of what she had to say. But Philippe Shrewski, been a big fan. Um, 
he's one of the first, I think, countertenors that to me like felt like this could be really exciting. Yes, there's that canceled countertenor we don't talk about anymore, who also was super exciting uh, when he was on the scene. And I was a fan of his singing. But for me, Philippe Jouski was was like, holy F, like, this is so cool. Like, he was always so individualistic and stylish as a singer. And his voice is a very kind of old school, you know, not a lot of vibrato, very, you know, edgy pointed sound. But it was his interpretations and his just willingness to be, I guess, jazzy, for lack of a better word. Like, he just sang just scoops and, like, fun phrasing and uh, sassy, you know, and fantastic coloratura. Uh, I've always loved it. And I always thought he's just been such a great artist. And so and it's exciting to me to see that now he is following the steps of like Rene Jacob, who's beginning to conduct ensembles. He hasn't started his own ensemble, ensemble yet. It's just conducting for the first time. So let's see where it goes. But you, know, you can't sing forever. So you got to have a backup plan. Let's go serious again as we wrap up the drill. Stephen Fry being brought on to that production of Oedipus Rex, which I mocked, I believe it was last week on the show. You did. And not without reason. I'm right. Now Stephen Fry is on board. So what's to like? uh, Well, Stephen Fry is in some ways still a mildly complicated character, at least for me anyway. You know, I can see like him doing these recordings of the narrator being amazing both for the live and the recorded performances of this but we're barely five years out from some relatively controversial remarks from this gentleman okay first of all for those who don't know who Stephen Fry is he is yes noted English actor he's one half of the comedy duo Fry and Laurie uh has you know been a beloved comedic figure for a number of decades there about five years ago he was on a show called the Rubin Report and made some uh made some comments about survivors of sexual abuse, sort of alleging that uh, if they pity themselves, they should, quote, grow up. Uh, He has since apologized for this statement. He says that it was misconstrued. Damage was kind of done in some circles. Uh, He also has kind of a a controversial May-December relationship. His husband is notedly younger than him. So he's got a... And hey, they're happy. Good good for them. But he's he comes with a little bit of controversy. And so I thought this was a very... Good in some ways, very interesting and questionable choice in others for what is already a weird production. As long as he's not boring, LA is going to be fine with it. (laughs) It's true. I mean, well, but, you know, George, as someone who has experience across the pond, I'm sure you know a little bit more about Stephen Fry than the average American bear. I just remember Stephen Fry from two things. One was when he did um, the uh, Jeeves and Worcester series with Hugh Laurie, of course, for like Masterpiece Theater. And I also think I have a a book on tape of him. I I believe he's reading Winnie the Pooh. It's yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it, it's strange. It's bizarre. It's well, he's also my dreams. Um, retranslated uh, some of the uh, Homer Odyssey and some of the I, I forget what. But he has two books on myths, um, like Greek mythology, um, and uh, I actually bought them. <laughs> Because I love Greek mythology, so Did he's telling it, yeah, from his uh, from his you know, pervy, older gay man perspective, you know, <laughs> which I don't know, maybe I identify with that. I don't know. <laughs> Let's uh, but before, but wait, before we wrap it up, I I gonna say this. I don't want to put words in uh, Nina Yoshida Nelson's mouth, so I'm just gonna read a little bit of what she said, tiny bit of this. Uh, In an effort to do right by the Asian community, the choice to cancel Butterfly in future seasons at opera houses will have a devastating impact on AAPI singers. Not only will we have less work, but it also means the audience will see fewer of us on the stage. We are the ones you wish to protect and support, and yet we're the ones who are losing work and losing opportunities. That's tough. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Going to wrap the show up. Oliver Camacho. So good call. Congratulations to Grace Kinsler for making it into the top three of American Idol. Uh, Grace Kinsler is the student of a personal friend of mine, uh, classically trained opera singer, Michelle Hackman, who's Chicago based, fantastic singer. Uh, she is Grace Kinsler's uh, voice coach, maybe even voice teacher. And so it was nice to see somebody using technique. If you heard American Idol this season, fantastic singer. Um, bad call to American Idol 
watchers besides me who all seem to be like teenage girls who have a hard on for white boys who play the guitar. Some most, things never change on American Most likely Idol. to win every year. They have had fantastic voices come to that show. But the white boy who plays the guitar, who is authentic and who's like troubled and like maybe drank too much and beat up his mom or something like that, they always win. So, Matt Cummings. I've got a great call, which is that I finally started watching Mayor of Easttown on HBO and I am obsessed with it. And I just want to give a shout out to Philadelphia-based, multi-Grammy-winning juggernaut The Crossing for their aural appearance in episode two. Weston Williams. Weston? That's odd. Ashley Hardgrave. I am currently coming to you from uh, rural Arkansas, which is where I hail from. I have been in what can only be described as a, a boomer music festival with members of my family playing covers of Almond Brothers and Doobie Brothers tunes. Uh, I was part of an impromptu bluegrass ensemble. I introduced a whole bunch of white people over the age of 60 to the artist her her who i've shouted out on this uh on this broadcast before i want to give a shout out to all of the voice students out there who are perfecting their craft who are working on the magical art that is classical music and their measure of success and how they are almost never capable of communicating that measure of success to their families who don't understand classical music because the amount of times this weekend that I was absolutely insisted that I should go audition for The Voice was mind-boggling. And I tried to explain to multiple members of my family, no, I'm doing okay. Like, my, my music career is pretty good. No, you just got to get on Blake Shelton's team. As soon as you get on Blake Shelton's team, you're going to be a star, <laughs> I promise you. So shout out to you. Keep fighting the good fight. They mean well when they tell you you should be on The Voice. Just take it as a compliment have some chicken and move on with your day i don't know if i have a good call or a bad call after three decades in charge stephen larson is retiring from the rockford symphony orchestra right here in illinois that's at the end of this year so the orchestra has had 200 applicants for this position and that's either a good call because of the quality of that orchestra or it's a bad call because there's many many unemployed conductors that's all for the show this week America's Talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. Our announcer's Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen the bench of listeners by smashing the like button and then sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. The opinions and views expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is just what we want, please and thank you. Our creative consultants, Oliver Camacho, audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you watch all 200 laps of the greatest spectacle in sports racing, the Indy 500. We're back with an all-new show next week when we go inside the huddle with mezzo-soprano Kate Lindsay. It's going to be Memorial Day, so that's all you get, people. But join us. <laughs>